everyone, Eric Grenier here, and welcome to the 29th episode of The Writ Podcast. It's been a big week here in Ottawa, and of course the biggest news is the ouster of Aaron O'Toole as leader of the Conservative Party. The Conservative Caucus put O'Toole's leadership to a vote, and he lost, pretty badly, 73-45. to 45. That makes him the first leader to be removed as a result of the Reform Act, which empowers MPs to do something just like this. There's lots to go over about how the Conservative Party got here and what comes next. So to help me work through it, I'm joined again today by the CBC's Aaron Wary. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Eric. So, yeah, it's been a bit of a week because I'm not sure if even a week or two ago, we were really counting the days of Aaron O'Toole's leadership to be as short as they were. Uh, it, it does seem like this came together all really quickly. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Like if you'd asked me on election night last fall, do you think Aaron O'Toole is going to survive as conservative leader? I might have said, you know, I don't think his chances are very good. But if you'd asked me last week whether Aaron O'Toole would be out within a week, I would have been shocked. Uh, so I like I, it feels from the outside like there was kind of this long simmering tension and whether it was the convoy or some other aspect of this finally pushed things over the edge and uh, led to this break. And of course, the other, the other issue here is the Reform Act, right? Like in any other situation, this might've simmered for a long time or gone all the way to the party and had a, had, had a membership vote. But because there was this kind of automatic trigger there and a, and a number you could hit, uh, it, I think that it, it feels like that gave the dissidents something to shoot for and, and then sort of things just kind of unraveled from there. It, it's surprising that it actually got to that because, you know, I've heard lots of people say that the Reform Act um, is a nice thing, but it's not really needed because if you're getting to the point where you're going to lose one of those votes, you would normally get out of the way and avoid that. Uh, and a lot of, a part of me expected that Aaron O'Toole, if he didn't think he was going to win, um, would preemptively resign because it's better to resign and, and hold up the notion that, you know, if you would have stayed, you know, we had the votes, but, you know, I, we were still divided, so didn't want to. But he didn't just lose a bit. He lost by quite a bit, only to have 45 of his 118 voting MPs. Because um, Scott Reed didn't vote because he was the chair of the committee. Um, that's not good. And it's it's a good analysis, Eric. Yes, thank uh, you. Well, that's why that's why you know I used to be paid the big bucks. But um, <laughs> it, it does suggest that really miscalculated, really misunderstood his own support within his caucus. Yeah, like I had the same feeling too. Like after the news broke that there were whatever it was, thirty five MPs, I thought, okay, well maybe because I think I think that night there was there was there was sort of scuttlebutt that that there was going to be a statement from O'Toole coming, and I thought, okay, so maybe he's going to resign. And then he didn't. And I thought, okay, well, you know, give it a shot, I guess. Uh, and then, but even up until yesterday morning, I thought, you know, surely he's, if this is bad for him, he's going to come out and say, uh, he's going to come out and preempt this and say, well, I concede, you know, I don't want to tear the party apart. You know, we need to be united. And so I'll step aside for the, be for the better interests of the party. And so it, it either suggests that he's just, you know, like, the bravest man alive and was willing to go in there and get defeated. He didn't know, or, or he didn't know what he was going, he was stepping into. Uh, and, but it also might suggest, you know, it might also speak to just the breakdown between him and, and the caucus that he didn't realize he was doomed. 
before he stepped in there. And, you know, uh, Hannah Thibodeau was reporting yesterday, my colleague, your former colleague now, that, uh, that he seemed to lose votes in the room with the way he addressed caucus. And, you know, that just, again, speaks to, it seems like there's sort of two things here, right? One is the public O'Toole and, uh, or O'Tools, uh, plural, uh, and the, the vulnerability that created. But it also seems like there just was a real breakdown between him and the caucus and how he deals with MPs and how he dealt with caucus and uh, and his read of that room. Uh, because, it, it, you know, yeah, like you say, if you know you're going to lose or you sh- A, you should know that you're going to lose. And if you do know that you're going to lose, uh, you probably shouldn't go all the way into the room and have it actually put down in numbers. Yeah. And uh, there was some, you know, leaked stuff about what happened during the discussions. Uh, and it seems that Aaron O'Toole, one of his pitches was, you know, I'll change. I can adopt different policies I can make. And I mean, this speaks to me, the the biggest problem with O'Toole. Now, Aaron O'Toole was not the only issue that, you know, cost the Conservatives the last election. But this notion of being a flip-flop flopper. Uh, when I had Dan Arnold on the podcast a few weeks ago, he said that that was one of the things that didn't really score well for uh, Aaron O'Toole in focus groups. And we saw some reporting uh, from, you know, MPs at the time who were, you know, the vote hadn't happened yet. They were talking anonymously saying that he was someone who kept on going back and forth. And even on the convoy, um, he went back and forth on his support or his opposition to it. So to go to that meeting, and maybe there were still some undecided MPs at the time, and to say, uh, you know, tell me what to do, and I'll and I'll do it. I, it must have confirmed for some of them, at least, that this is how it's always going to be. Yeah, it it is kind of remarkable that if it, you know he he did really he does you know the tale of his time as as leader seems to be a lot of like sort of just tell me what you want me to say and I'll say it. And uh, I you know. So it's there's something comedic in the fact that he went down sort of pleading with people like just, you know, I'll take whatever position you need me to take kind of thing. Uh, but it, I do think, you know, and I, I'm sure this is what Dan Arnold was picking up. I do wonder whether he was sort of fundamentally broken as a political figure at this point. Like the the idea that he'd been one thing and then was another. And and I think even flipped back to the conservative leadership era O'Toole after the election to try to prop himself up like I don't know that that's I think the public you know a lot of times we sort of say well the public doesn't really pay attention to to politics they don't pay attention to this stuff they don't get lost in it you know uh it doesn't really matter but I think the public can pick up on the idea that you're not who you say you are or you're willing to say whatever you need to say to different audiences to get people to vote for you and I think that I'm not sure that O'Toole could have ever gotten over that, you know, like I, I and I also think there's a weird thing here where, you know, the, uh, the, the fact that O'Toole had kind of campaigned is one thing, a campaign to the right and then tried to come back to the center during the general election. I think there was a, an undercurrent in common political commentary that like, well, that's that's what politicians do. Right. They, they, mm. they play, play to the base and then they play to the to the wider electorate. But I think that's, I think that the, the commentary had sort of transposed that from the American situation where it's much more common for political leaders to run to the right or the left and then come back for the primary, their party primary, and then come back to the center for the general election. 
I don't think there's really a history of people doing that in Canada. I don't know that that's really a common thing in Canadian politics for political leaders to run hard one way and then come back to a moderate position for the general election. And I think as much as people knew it was happening, I think they underestimated how much trouble that would cause. And it, for, for the first couple of weeks of the election campaign in the fall, it sort of seemed like maybe O'Toole, it wasn't going to be a problem. But in hindsight, it was sort of just a matter of time until somebody, you know, put their finger on an issue that he had said one thing and now wanted to say another, and the whole thing unraveled. And with O'Toole, it was guns. And and so, you know, how whatever the whatever the sort of the exact cause of his his losing the vote yesterday, like it, I do kind of wonder whether he was just fundamentally broken as a political leader, and it was never going to work for him because he had done, he had presented too many versions of himself. One of the strongest arguments that you heard repeated about why they shouldn't replace O'Toole was that we can't keep doing this every time, which isn't a very strong endorsement of the person who's currently there. That it's just like, yeah, but we can't just keep changing every time. We got to stick with the you know dance with the one you brought kind of thing. Um, it didn't seem to be even the people who were saying you know that he should stay. It had to do much more with we need to focus on the liberals. We need to not go through this again. Um, which I guess in, in the end, if, if, if a lot of those MPs might have looked around the room or the virtual room and say, well, you know, my colleagues aren't on board with this anymore at this stage, you know, this is not going to go away. Um, I guess the, they felt like at that point, uh, this isn't going to get any better and, and just changing him for someone else isn't necessarily going to be the solution, but sticking with him for the sake of sticking with him is no longer a, an answer. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. Like, yeah, you're right. You shouldn't, you know, ideally they wouldn't be flipping leaders every time. But you can't, you know, you can't just go, well, look, we shouldn't be switching leaders, so we'll stick with this guy. Uh, and I, you know, the other part of it is that even if it had just been 35 MPs, just 35 MPs who opposed him, I don't think that was survivable. Like, even if the other, you know, whatever it was, 70 odd MPs had voted with him. Uh, like, I don't know how he limps along with a quarter of his caucus or a third of his caucus uh, being against him. I just don't, I think that's untenable. And uh, I can imagine that uh, once the 35 came out, you know, I guess, I, I guess it worked out to be, you know, another 35 or so sort of looked around and went, well, it's over. Uh, we got to, we got to find somebody else now uh, because it just, as soon as those 35 went public, I think it was kind of over for O'Toole. And with the statement that he put out the night before, um, more or less indicating that if he won by a vote or two, he could still try to stick around. Uh, uh, that probably didn't help things either, right? There must have been... No, and it probably been, also didn't... Yeah. yeah. I mean, it probably also didn't help that his office went out and spun, oh, well, the people who are against him are just against him because they uh, they don't want to vote against conversion therapy. <laughs> um, you know, which again, like nuking your own party to save yourself. Uh, again, isn't going to work. Like, I, yeah, the whole thing just, uh, it collapsed, but it, it may have been a house of cards uh, to begin with. Uh, and it just took one, sooner or later, this was going to happen. Yeah, it was pretty spectacular in a way. When I heard the number, I was really surprised. I thought that he was, I thought that he was probably going to lose the vote, but that it would be like relatively close, but this wasn't really very close at all. Um but because it was such a, a significant portion of the caucus that decided not to support him, I'm not, you know, it, 
I don't think all of those people are those on the right of the party. You know, like it's almost too big that uh, one of the reports said that roughly half of the Quebec MPs could have been four or five out of the 10 did end up voting against him. So, you know, those Quebec MPs are not those that are, um, you know, the most to the right. They're mostly the ones that are, are to the center of the party uh, or the left of the Conservative Party itself. Uh, so it does show that there were some people who were coming from both sides that decided that this was done. Uh, but I still do think about what this means for the divisions within the party, because the biggest problem for him, uh, for a lot of conservatives, was his decision to have a, you know, quote unquote, carbon tax um, to do the the uh, anti-conversion therapy bill that they allowed the liberals to rush through uh, or pass through in December. Um, so there was that aspect to it. And a lot of the people who seemed to be supporting him were primarily those who are on the, the center of the party, the moderates, uh, who wanted to have more of a, a centrist approach. Uh, there was a, a Joël Godin, who's a Quebec MP, I saw him quoted in the Le Devoir, saying that if the party goes too far to the right, he might have to leave. He might have to sit as an independent. He might have to cross the floor or start his own party. Uh, can the Conservatives get through this as one party? You would, yeah, I don't, I, it isn't, like, I think all things considered, you know, there's the, every incentive for them to stick together, right? Like, they'll look around and go, well, if we break into, like, our, our chances that either of us, like, that even my side's going to break, that's going to form power is, is limited. So it's better for us to stick together and try to figure out a way to make this work. But I do wonder how you know, depending on where things go from here and who leads the party, whether everybody's going to be able to be on board with whatever they do. Um, you know, on carbon pricing, for instance, if they pick, if they decide, no, we're against carbon pricing, we're not doing it. Uh, can, the, can the people who want a moderate centrist party stay with it? Uh, conversely, if they say, yeah, we're, the party leader says, okay, we are going to do carbon pricing. Is that, do they lose the people who are absolutely against it? Uh, I don't know what the identity of that party is that they can all hold together. And I don't know whether uh, they can all feel comfortable being in that party. Like it is, you know, it's a party that split up before. So it's definitely possible. Uh, I wouldn't say it's the likeliest outcome, but uh, it doesn't feel impossible. Uh, one thing I've been wondering, you know, there's been a lot of talk about how Stephen Harper kept this coalition together um, and was able to win elections. But, you know, Stephen Harper became leader of the Conservative Party uh, 18 years ago. And the last election that he won as leader of the party was 10 years ago. I wonder if that coalition was easier to hold together because more people were there at the time. Is, you know, would the Harper coalition be big enough today? Uh, to win an election. I wonder if things have shifted because on a lot of these issues, on the social conservative issues, um, you know, this was still a pretty divisive issue when uh, gay marriage was passed in, I think it was 2004, 2005. Um, you know, now it's, it's pretty much a settled thing. So in the Harper era, having social conservatives within the party might've been a thing where a lot of people could say, well, you know, we respect their views, we disagree with them, but this is a place where we can still debate. But now I wonder if on some of these issues, it's moved so much that it's no longer really a big tent because for a lot of Canadians, they might look at people who are in the tent and say, like, I don't want to be in this tent. Um, 
because of who's in it. And you can just look at what happened with the convoy, right? There's a lot of people who uh, would say that a lot of people are there for you know principle and they're not there to ruin people's lives. They're not racist, all that kind of thing. But if you're including some awful people within your tent, some people don't want to be in that tent anymore. And I wonder if the party has changed. The, the times have changed, but the party hasn't changed enough. Yeah, that's interesting. Like my hunch with, Har with Harper would be that he was able to hold that party together. He was able to get the party together and then hold it together because they'd been out of power for a decade and getting back into power and having power were such incentives that uh, it took precedence over everything else. So even if there were differences, even if social conservatives didn't love the, the things Harper was doing all the time, the, the threat of losing power or not being able to get into power was enough to keep them together. And that then when 2015 came along and they were out of power, suddenly it was, okay, now that we're out of power, it's, it's a chance for, for everyone to go, okay, well, what should this party be and how should it be represented? And what, have, what differences have we uh, sort of uh, papered over for the last nine years that we now want to uh, reassess? and uh, opinions that we want to express. The other thing I would wonder about is, you know, Harper flirted with acting on climate change, but for the most part, he punted it down the road. And uh, in hindsight, by punting it down the road, he, I mean, he may have created more problems for the, for the party going in, you know, in the long term. but I wonder whether he avoided some problems at the time and by, you know, not tackling emissions from the oil and gas industry by, you know, not uh, 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 by, by not putting a price on carbon, whether he gingerly stepped around a bunch of things that now the party can't figure out how to deal with, uh, and whether that has changed the calculus uh, significantly for the conservatives. You know, like at, in 2015, like I, I sort of spend a lot of time writing on climate. So maybe I'm fixated on this issue particularly, but you know, in 2015, the thought was, well, carbon pricing is a loser. Acting on climate change is really hard politically. And it really feels like in the space of seven years, that's flipped. And now carbon pricing is a mark of, of being serious about climate change and the public wants you to act on climate change. And the conservatives, you know, one of the possible downsides writ large from the Aaron O'Toole, from the Aaron O'Toole era, is whether he has poisoned the chalice on carbon pricing in the Conservative Party by sort of bait and switching the party and seeming to backtrack on his own position. He and not ever kind of having a moment where he went to the party and said, you know, Aaron O'Toole, you know, political commentators like me sometimes put too much stock in speeches, but Aaron O'Toole could have gone to the party and said, look. I understand we have opposed carbon pricing in the loudest possible terms for a decade now. And I understand why we did that, but we have to face up to the reality of the situation and we have to take this issue seriously. And here's why we need to have a price on carbon and here's why it's better than the alternatives. But he never did that. He just sort of went, uh, we opposed Justin Trudeau's carbon tax. And then one day was like, oh, and here's our own carbon tax. And, uh, <sighs> There's a there's a potential downside here where he's he's going to end up where the Conservative Party will end up being even more opposed to carbon pricing than it was before, uh, and that will you know both make the debate harder in Canada, but uh, around climate action, but will also 
uh, make it harder for conservatives to get elected. And so I, that, like, to your point about, like, whether the Harper era was sort of an anomaly, I do, I do think, I don't know whether it was an anomaly, but it does feel like we're in a different world now. And conservatives haven't quite figured out how their party works in this new world. Well, Michael Chong, when he ran in 2017, and he was talking about uh, carbon pricing, he would be booed by uh, uh, conservative members. I don't think he would get a better reception today if he runs and has a carbon pricing position. I'm not sure if he's still going to avoid booze. Um, yeah, no, I was thinking about that exact scenario too, because I was like, you know, maybe Michael Chong run, runs again because he feels that carbon pricing needs to be represented in a leadership debate. And then I was thinking about the same scene that you mentioned, like, okay, so if he stood on a debate stage tomorrow and said, conservatives need to implement a carbon tax, what would the reaction be? And I was like, and I was thinking about it and I'm like, you know, I, I feel like a bunch of candidates on stage would laugh at him and he'd be booed. And that's, that's a tough spot for both the climate debate and the conservative party. You can already kind of see the, the, you know, the rejoinder, you know, we tried running as liberal light in 2021 and look what that, look what happened. Um, so it, that'll be one of the little kind of debates within the leadership race. It'll be interesting to watch to see what the party's going to do. I guess the question is how much of a debate they're really going to have, right? Because we've already seen some of the people talking about having a relatively short race that would end sometime in the fall or have a leader probably to be there on the, when uh, Parliament returns in, in the fall after the summer break, um, which probably means not a huge amount of time to sign up new members. So you're probably talking to mostly the existing base that elected Aaron O'Toole um, just two years ago. Um, <clears throat> can't you know What kind of debate is really going to happen over the next, let's say, six months uh, you know, on these issues? Yeah. yeah. It feels like we went through a period where everybody was everybody thought having long leadership campaigns was the ideal, right? Like, oh, we really should have a long debate. And we should test these candidates. And I, I feel like the conventionalism started to flip over the last few years where it was like, you know, long campaigns might be good for Eric Renier, but they're not necessarily good for the party. And uh, those are very that's an important consideration. I, <laughs> I don't know. Recording the Eric Renier constituency, but are we losing the rest? Uh, so I, like, I don't, I, I would think the conservatives would aim to have this wrapped up before the end of the year. Uh, uh, in particular, because we're in a minority situation and I don't know that they necessarily want to be sitting around without a, without a leader for too long. I mean, I think it is possible to still have debates within a short campaign. My question would be whether, you know, does someone like Pierre Pauly have come charging out of the gates and uh, the sort of non- Pierre uh, corners of the party don't really have uh, an alternative to suggest, and uh, and kind of or, or someone like that kind of wins it in a walk. Like, is there going to be a real fight here, or is a is a prohibitive favorite going to come out quick and uh, sort of win this before before anybody really gets to even have a contest? To be fair, we did think that was what was going to happen in 2020 with Peter McKay, right? So, right, right. Um, and I don't think he won. So uh, we could have the same kind of scenario, right? Where it is Pierre Polyev, everyone's like, well, it's obviously going to be him. And then someone else, you know, 
comes up from behind and ends up winning in it because they can somehow overturn overturn sort of the narrative. And so that brings me to the last point I want to try to discuss a little bit is that the what paths are there, right? Is there going to be a quote unquote red Tory candidate running this time? Will one bother to run? Peter McKay got a pretty rough go and he wasn't even that much of a red Tory. He has a, he had a sort of a, you know, reputation as a red Tory, but right. uh, not really a record that backed that up, but he was trying to represent that wing of the party. Um, will one run this time? Because they haven't had a lot of success. Yeah, I, that's an interesting point. Like to me, the, the, the one, the, so the first thing I'm most interested in is, is there going to be a debate about the convoy? Are we going to have a kind of convoy candidate and a non-convoy candidate? Uh, are, are people willing to challenge that? Uh, is someone willing to come out of the out of the out of the woodwork and say, you know, I don't think we should be aligned with this? Uh, is there going to be a, a debate about that, uh, or is it just going to be sort of a, a, a kind of constellation of convoy candidates? Uh, you know, so I think that's kind of the first sort of point of difference I'm interested to see. And then, and yeah, like, can there be a moderate? candidate like part of me thinks there there has to be like someone in that side of the party will say well somebody's got to be the standard bearer here but then the question becomes like does that person get a, much of a hearing or are they michael chong of, of 2017 where you know he wasn't completely wiped out like he didn't you know he didn't finish last but he certainly didn't he certainly wasn't considered a front runner by the end of the campaign uh yeah i like it you know, and I and I, I guess I don't know whether the the default the, the 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 split in this party is necessarily between hard hard right and moderate, but for the, the for the the kind of big picture political scene, that's sort of the question: is are you going to get a hard right candidate, or are you going to get a moderate winner? And uh, I just don't know how interested the party is in having that debate, or whether the party has sort of decided, no, we want to go back and be the. We, we actually did want the guy that we voted for in 2020 uh, or whatever it was. We do want the true blue conservative who's going to take on the radical right and take back Canada. And that's the guy we want. So whoever says that this time, that's what we'll pick. It, it does. Yeah. I mean, it seems the obvious thing. The, the candidate, the candidate profile who won in 2020 is probably the favorite to win this time. There's no real reason to expect it'll be any different. Um, I think the, the 2020 race because there was four candidates, in a way, I think it it did kind of show where the wings are, right? You have uh, someone who is trying to run as a moderate candidate, someone who's trying to run as more or less the populist, you know, conservative candidate. That would be Aaron O'Toole in the last one. You have someone who's running as a social conservative candidate. That was Leslie Lewis. And someone who's running as the kind of person who would be, you know, all in with the convoy, which would be a Derek Sloan kind of person. Um and if you have 10 candidates this time, they're all still fighting for that same kind of territory, right? Uh, and I think the challenge for the moderate candidate is that they can't get the support of the social conservative and they can't get the support of the, you know, the, the PPC kind of candidate. That tends to go to the populist kind, uh, kind of person running. And it seems just like an obvious sort of funneling of, of where that vote is going to end up going. Yeah, like one thing... And this is where maybe they should take advice from you, Eric. Like one thing that I'm interested in is whether they would go back and whether there will be a debate about what they should take away from the, the 2021 election result. 
Like, will they look at that result and say, as you mentioned earlier, well, look, we tried the moderate thing, it didn't work. Or will they, kind because of, I don't think that's a fair read of those results. I don't think you can look at those results uh, and say, well, the moderate thing doesn't work. Like, to me, A, there's a ton of noise in just uh, O'Toole's own approach. But like, you know, from my recollection of those results and my, what I've looked at, when I've looked at those results, it kind of looks like maybe O'Toole was sort of headed in the right direction, uh, but couldn't quite close the deal. And so it would be, it would be interesting to see whether, how they, if, if they look at those results and have a debate about them and then what their takeaways are from it. Do they look at those results and go, well, you know, we can afford to lose some votes in Alberta and Saskatchewan if we just win a few more votes in Ontario, or do they look at those results, as you said, and say, uh, well, we tried the moderate thing, it didn't work. Like, what would you, like, if you look at those results, do you, do you see any big conclusions from them? Well, for me, if you're looking at the moment when the Conservatives were leading the most, where they were the closest to winning, it was the point of the campaign where the Conservatives had had a good uh, start. They were trying to run more or less as the moderate uh, a party, not that far further to the right uh, of the Liberals on a lot of issues. And that's when they were doing well in the polls. Again, just to go back to what Dan Arnold said a couple of weeks ago, that was when um, the party was doing well and the Liberals were worried. It was only when they brought in the contradiction on the um, the gun laws and then the vaccination stuff started to you know build up a little bit more that it chipped away at, at the, the conservative position as being, you know, a trustworthy uh, centrist kind of party. So it, I, I think that if you do take the lesson that liberal light didn't work, you're taking the wrong lesson. What didn't work was the inauthenticity, the uh, flip-flop on policy, the um, it's sort of the same kind of playbook that the liberals have always had with the conservatives is that, no, you can't trust them. You know, they're, they're actually for the right. But if you give them, re if you give voters a, a reason to believe that, then I think that's really damaging for the conservatives. And, you know, there'll be people will say, well, they won the popular vote and all that kind of stuff. And it's true, but they really, I know it, it is a cliched and you mentioned it. They don't need though all those votes in Alberta and Saskatchewan. If the liberals are still getting 40% of the vote in Ontario, they're still winning the plurality of the vote in Quebec. You're not going to win an election. It's just kind of, that's just the math. And if the conservatives are not competitive in Ontario, if they're only getting 30, 35%, that's not good enough. Doesn't matter if they're getting seventy percent in Saskatchewan. While they might be winning the national popular vote, it's just not how elections are decided here. And the Liberals have figured that out, and the Conservatives seem to not want to figure that out. Or they seem to want to, they seem to want to hold on to their their uh, sort of base and just hope that eventually, sooner or later, the Ontario vote will come enough to them that they can claim some kind of victory. And I, like, I don't know, when I look at the Conservative Party post, you know, the, the modern Conservative Party history, the sort of post 2003 history, like, I think you can read the, the results really two different ways. One, you can look at them and go, well, they've like really established themselves as a permanent fixture in the party and they're or in the country and they're competitive and they can win elections. The other way to look at it is they've never broken 40 They've lost more than they've won. Uh, do, you know, is that really like is thirty nine percent their ceiling, and that's what they should hope for? And they, you know, they should hope to win sort of three out of every sort of nine or or eight elections. Or 
you know, is there a way to kind of get over 40 and be uh, a more dominant party in the future? And I don't like it. It still seems to me like they're taught, like the conservative party might be, might, might be aiming as high, only as high as 39. And that's sort of it. And I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that's a, the better long-term play for them, but it feels like there's a conversation for the conservative party to have here where they go, okay, what would it look like for us to get to 45? Or at least have that in our in our in the in the in our universe of possibilities, uh, and you know I I just don't know that they're yet sort of shooting for that. It still feels like they're like they're trying to kind of win the math of well, look if we can just get to thirty nine and the liberals can fall back a bit, that's enough for us and we'll win. Uh, now, granted, I think in the future there will be questions about whether. Conservatives having a more minority in Parliament is enough for them to hold power, but it's. I do wonder whether Conservatives are aiming high enough. I guess. Yeah, I mean the Liberals, you know, they benefited from a desire for change in 2015 and two not very strong opposition leaders in the last two elections. The Conservatives had exactly the same kind of thing, right? 2006 desire of change, sponsorship scandal, uh, and then they had two weak. Opposition leaders and Stefan Zion and Michael Ignatieff. So, um, you know, it is hard to take kind of broader lessons about this when a lot of it is just based on what the other party's doing. Because if you look at what the conservative vote share is as a share of all voters, it's almost been constant in all of these elections. Uh, one of the reasons they won the majority in 2011 was that the liberal vote just stayed home. And uh, I think that's one of the challenges there too is that getting to 39% for them in that election, a little bit more than 39%, required the turnout to be quite low. And that's a different kind of strategy that you're playing when you're trying to hope that the other guy's votes stay home rather than trying to increase the size of your of your base, um, which is a way to win an election. But you know, it's better if you have, I guess, both options on the table, that the turnout will be low for your opponents and turnout will be high for you. I mean, the other factor here, and I don't know if it's, it's really something that conservatives can think about, but I think it's something for the wider conversation and for the rest of the electorate to consider is that like, look, the next conservative leader is going to face a government that's in its eighth or ninth year, might have changed prime ministers by then. Uh, you know, the longer the liberals are in government, the, the conceivably, the, the greater the chances become that, that somebody else is going to end up going to win the next election. And so you know, for all the talk about where the conservatives should go, uh, it's possible that the next conservative leader will just be the guy who's guy or woman who's lucky enough to be sitting in that spot uh, when the government, when the Canadian, when the Canadian public decides to change leaders. But I think so. You know, like, look, this may all, this may all be moot. Uh, but I do think there is a long term conversation for this party to have about where it's going and what its ceiling looks like. I don't know why. I do think that the political environment is is more competitive now than it's been maybe in Canadian history. There's more parties that are more will more capable of winning votes. But uh, yeah, it, it, I I do kind of wonder whether the Conservatives are, have ended up in a place where uh, figuring out whether they're content to, to kind of be a party of 39% as a ceiling, or whether there's a a, a party of, whether there's a, a situation out there where where winning 45% is is a possibility. Yeah, and the idea of timing being everything uh, could have a big influence on who decides to run this time, right? Because yeah. I think the argument is, if it's not this one, the next one might be 
you know, in a while, right? Because the next person who wins the leadership has a decent shot of becoming the prime minister. And so, you know, unless you're in your 30s or 40s, uh, this might be it. So we'll see if we get some good candidates because uh, the last two can- leadership races, you know, Peter McKay was seen as one of these big, big leading lights within the party. But if you look at the entire field of candidates in 2017 and 2020, you know, there wasn't the Brad Wall, there wasn't the Jean Charest, there wasn't the Ron Ambrose, there wasn't all of these, um, you know, people who were seen as obvious front runners, obvious next leaders. We haven't had that kind of profile. So we'll see if it ends up being one that is just very quick. Someone like Polyev just gets the walk. Or if we get, you know, a, a competitive race with a, an interesting field of candidates. And, um, you know, anybody who's watching politics is hoping that it will be an interesting field of candidates and a competitive yes. race. Yeah, last, time, last time's race was almost defined more by the fact that we spent like a month, we spent like two months speculating about a dozen different candidates who all, who all declined to run. Uh, and then, you know, it came down to O'Toole and McKay, and it was it was not the race we all thought we were going to get. This time we may get that race. I mean, I do think one way or another, this is a massive race for the party and a, and a very interesting race for the country, uh, given the times, given the situation. Uh, yeah. The way the direction this party takes is is going to be both fascinating and important. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast to talk uh, to me about it again, Aaron. And uh uh, I'm sure we'll have lots to talk about in the next, what, six, eight months, maybe at least. We'll see. Yeah, something like that. Good to talk to Eric. Thanks again, Aaron Wary, for coming on the podcast. And that'll be it for this episode. Clearly, this political year has gotten a lot more interesting now that we have a conservative leadership race again. So if you aren't already a subscriber of the writ.ca, I hope you'll head over to the website and consider subscribing. I'll have lots of coverage of this race, along with the upcoming provincial elections in Ontario and Quebec. Also, just wanted to flag that on Saturday, the BC Liberal Party will be choosing its next leader. There are seven candidates in the running, though nearly half of the caucus has gotten behind Kevin Falcon, who came second to Christy Clark in the 2011 BC Liberal leadership race. Something to watch over the weekend. Okay, that's it for this week. Keep safe, and thanks for listening. <music>